This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 43. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise." But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when they came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's Pray that the Lord would add His blessing to it. Let's pray together. O Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that is indeed a treasure for us. Lord, please use it to draw us closer to Yourself, to show us the Savior, to bring us to the cross, that we might find grace and forgiveness and become more and more like Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, it is perhaps the most famous and well-known hymn of all time. You know what I mean. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This hymn is so well known and 
I think we cannot help but think of it as we come to a passage like this where we have a blind man. Where we have a blind man who now can see. But I think sometimes we focus too much on the physical in a passage like this. For we know that in that great hymn, John Newton was not referring to cataracts. He was not referring to glasses that he needed to have put on so that he could see. His blindness was not a blindness of sight, per se. It was a blindness of seeing Jesus. And that's what we have here this morning. Actually, in two ways. The story of a blind beggar and the story of some blind disciples. This morning, I'd like us to see three things from this text. The first is I'd like us to think about what it means to be once blind. And then secondly, I would like us to see what it means to now see Jesus. And then as a result of that, I'd like us to rest in knowing what it means to be ever trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Once blind, now seeing and ever trusting. Let's begin then by looking at the story of the beggar at verse 35 of chapter 18. Jesus is coming up to Jericho, and there is a blind man who is sitting by the side begging. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment life for this man. Because, you see, before we meet him, he had a day-to-day existence. It was a dreary day-to-day existence, but it's something that we must think about if we are to understand the change that occurs in his life. You can just imagine what life would be like for him as the morning comes, and he tells it's morning more because the evening breeze begins to die away, more because the heat of the sun begins to be felt on his skin. For after all, the sun comes up, And he doesn't know the difference. But he knows it's morning and he rouses himself from sleep. He gets up and he shakes the straw and the dirt out of his cloak and out of his clothing. He stands up and perhaps he tries to pat his hair down a bit and he grabs his stick or his cane and he begins to wind through the streets of Jericho. Streets he knows full well, but he's still using a stick to touch the walls, so he knows where he's going, counting his steps so that he can make his way to the gate, to just outside the city, because it's the place of highest traffic in the city. It's the place where he can sit and then begin to beg. And he would expect that this day would go like every other one, that he would sit in that spot, that he would beg, and as the day went on, and as he realized night was coming, as it got cooler, And as the sun ceased to throw heat upon his face, he would gather himself up again to go back to his place of sleeping, probably outside, so that he could rest and then start the whole thing over again the next day. It's a very dreary existence, isn't it? It almost makes you feel like the commute into Houston is high adventure. This is what this man's life was like. He had a need that anyone could see. He couldn't 
make his way in the world. He couldn't even take in the world. He can't see what is going on. And as a result, he's also a man without a family. You see, in this day and age, if you were a blind man, no one would marry you. What woman would want to be taken care of by a man who couldn't work by definition? There are no assistances. There are no aids. There are no compliance agencies. All a blind man could do is beg. And so you see, he wouldn't have a wife to love and to take care of. He wouldn't have children to help him. He would be not only a blind man, he would be a lonely man. And as a result, he would also be a very poor man, wouldn't he? He wouldn't have a savings account. He wouldn't have fine clothing. He would have whatever was cast off near him that he could keep. He's a man who's blind and obviously in need. But we see just before him a bit of a different story. We see Jesus going with his disciples down toward Jerusalem. At first glance, it seems like it's a very different kind of story, but I'd like us to see some similarities. You can imagine the disciples who are traveling with Jesus. Now, we don't call them the apostles yet, but that's who they are. It's the twelve, Luke tells us. It's Jesus' core disciples who have been with him for years. They are traveling all throughout Israel with him. And you can imagine what they're doing now. They're wondering what's about to happen next. You see, after all, they don't have Luke's chapters 19, 20, 21, and following. They don't know what's going to happen. They know that a lot has been going on. Jesus has been going all sorts of places, stirring up controversy, performing miracles, teaching on the kingdom of God. We've just been seeing this the last few weeks in chapters 18 and 17. But if they're ordinary people like you and me, and they are, they might have the same kind of reaction now that we would have if we were with Jesus and we didn't have Luke chapters 19 and following. They would be saying to themselves, where's the action? Where are you going with this, Jesus? A lot of exciting things going on, but okay, you're the Messiah. We believe it. Can we get this kingdom thing jump-started? Can we really see some Messiah power? I mean, really. You could imagine, if you were in their shoes, that the more they see, the more frustrated they get. And the less they see the big picture. With every miracle, they're expecting the other shoe to drop, and it doesn't. With every teaching, they're expecting kingdoms to fall, and they don't. You know what that's like, don't you? When you're waiting for something to come to an accomplishment. You get frustrated. You want it to be completed. And remember who they believe Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the second David, the son of David. And who is David? David's the great warrior king of Israel, isn't he? He's the one who defeats Israel's enemies, who starts the kingdom, who establishes Jerusalem. And this is what they're waiting for. After all, the impossible odds are not a problem. 
If David could take out Goliath, surely Jesus could take out the Romans. What is going on here? You see, what they want is the restoration of Israel. We see this, I think, even more vividly in another gospel. You see, Mark chapter 10 is almost completely parallel to Luke chapter 18. The same stories. The story of the children coming to Jesus. The story of the rich young ruler. The story of Jesus foretelling his death. The story of the blind man being healed. But Mark gives us one little vignette in between. He tells us of John and James coming up and asking Jesus for a favor. They say, Lord, could you do this one thing for us? Well, what's that? We just want to sit at your right and your left hand in your glory. By the way, could you please hurry up with the glory? We, we really would like to sit at the right and the left. We don't want to waste any more time. And the interesting thing about this is they've completely missed what Jesus has said. Because that vignette comes right after the story we see in verses 31 to 34. Where Jesus is talking about what? I'll give you a hint. It's not glory. It's not a king on his throne. You see, often that's the temptation that comes to you and to me, isn't it? We want Jesus to bring the glory. Because that's, after all, what we want. We don't want to be in a nation in decline. We don't want to see civilization falling apart. We don't want to see God's word blasphemed. We don't want to see what's good and right and just mocked. We want to see God set things right and set it right quick. And the irony is, by focusing on these things, we can be like blind disciples. And we miss exactly what Jesus is saying. We miss the Messiah. Because you see, what Jesus is saying to them in this passage is that I am the Messiah. Do you notice how he puts it here in verse 31? He says, everything that is written about the Son of Man will come to pass. Now the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite term for himself. And he takes it from the Old Testament. It's not something someone else gave to him. He takes it himself from the Old Testament, specifically from Daniel chapter 7. And in there, the Son of Man describes the eternal, sovereign God. But do you see what Jesus says? He says, the eternal, sovereign Messiah will be delivered over. What? Oh, by the way, to the Gentiles. No, not the dogs. Yes. And he'll be killed. Oh, never, Lord. Well, not right away. First he'll be mocked. Then he'll be tortured. Then he'll be killed. When you start to put it in those terms, you can understand why Luke says, they heard what was going on, but they didn't understand what was meant. It doesn't fit into their worldview. They're looking and looking and looking. But they're not seeing. They're not grasping Jesus' meaning. So here we have two groups that are blind. One we understand from physical blindness. The other all too often we can fall into. Being blind to Jesus. 
But the next thing that comes here is sight. We see what it's like to now be seeing. Let's go back to the beggar in verse 35. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And everything that he has been working for is now coming to a head. All of his ministry is coming to a head. We have been saying this. Luke has been pointing us to this. He is about to enter Jerusalem and to complete his work upon the cross. And here's a blind man. What's he doing? You see it, the text says it. He's just sitting. The second person of the Trinity is about to perform the most momentous work in all of the universe. And this guy's sitting by the side of the road. Think about that. He didn't come seeking out Jesus. He didn't have a plan to find Jesus. He wasn't inquisitive about Jesus. He's just there. But then what happens? A crowd begins to come by. And you can again imagine in your mind's eye, if you were blind, sitting perhaps up against a wall or a rock, and you start to hear some noise. You can hear it farther off than others because your hearing is more attuned. You hear rumblings and rustlings and people making noise and then perhaps people running by. I like to think that it begins with children and young people rushing by as as younger people so often do have so much more energy. And you can imagine him crying out and saying, what's going on? And before he gets the words out there, down the street. And he's starting to get frustrated, trying to find out what's going on. And then eventually some older people come by and he's asking, what is this? What's the uproar? I imagine in my mind's eye, he he grabs the cloak of someone going by and hangs on and says, you've got to tell me, what is all this uproar? And someone says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Give me back my cloak. And he goes on. He knows Jesus is here. Now, he's not oblivious to his need. You see, we become desensitized to our own needs, don't we? Until we see a point of escape. Then we understand that we need release from something. You see, he's been living with blindness this whole time. And now he realizes he might be able to be escaped from it. Jesus can help him. This is something that we experience every day. We put up with chronic pain, don't we? Until the doctor gives us a shot and we realize we don't have to have that pain all the time. And then what do we obsess about? Release from that pain. You see, that's what this man is experiencing. And so the speed at which Luke describes this incident is very descriptive. The man knows this is his chance. He knows Jesus is here. He's got to do something. But what can he do? He's blind. He can't get anywhere. There's obviously a large crowd. He could get crushed. What can he possibly do? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't get up and say, you know, I need help from Jesus. I'd better go home and get some better clothes on. I better wash off my face. I better make sure my breath smells minty fresh. I better make sure that I am in the best possible shape so that when Jesus sees me, he will want to come and help me. 
Do you see that? This is a picture of life, beloved. You see, what he does is what everyone who comes to Jesus does. He just stands up and cries out for help. He doesn't try and put his best foot forward. He doesn't try and manage the situation. He doesn't try and show what he's done to deserve Jesus' attention. All he does is say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's heard the stories about Jesus. He's heard that he's healed the sick, made the lame to walk, the blind to see. And so what he does is he immediately goes to Jesus. Now then think about this for your own life. We sit here in church this morning. Do we try to make church less messy so Jesus will be with us? Do we try to make sure that we've got the best smiles? And that the pastor doesn't have any idea at all that inside we're in horrible, horrible pain. Or that we're struggling deeply with sin. We don't want to admit to others. We don't even want to admit it to ourselves. Because the minute we do, we realize we're broken. And Jesus won't take broken people. After all, look around. Everyone else at church is pulled together. Their lives are all perfect, right? You see, this is a temptation that comes to us. We need to realize we're more like this blind beggar than we realize. And you know what? Praise God. Because you see, the blind beggar doesn't go away to be better to come to Jesus. The blind beggar just goes to Jesus. He can't see Jesus, so he cries out to him. There's a great urgency about what he's doing. What he's doing is embarrassing. If he were here, you would be shushing him, just like the people in the front row. Do you see that? He's crying out and they're saying, sit down and shut up. You're embarrassing us. Jesus is here. But do you see what he does? He won't be stopped. He won't be embarrassed. He's got to get to Jesus. And so he cries out even all the louder. The language here that Luke uses is vivid. The first word he uses for cry out is the kind of word that we might use for yell. The way a child might be loud when they're very happy. Maybe even when they hurt themselves. The second word that's used is a word that's often used of animals crying out, baying at the moon, howling, screaming, shrieking. He takes it up another level. Not only will he not be stopped, he will get to Jesus. So what's caused this change in the beggar from his everyday, dreary, humdrum life of blindness He had been mild-mannered. It's not as if he was unused to being blind. He had to learn to live with that. This is simply one visiting rabbi, isn't it? Even all the hustle and the bustle is explained by the fact that it's about to be the Passover. There would be a lot of people traveling near Jerusalem. There would be priests getting ready in Jericho to go serve in the temple. What's caused all this change? Well, John Newton said it. He once was blind, but now 
he sees. But wait, Pastor, you say, that's a couple of verses down. No, it isn't. It's right here. He sees Jesus. He sees who Jesus is. Can't you hear it? Perhaps you need to close your eyes and hear it. He looks to Jesus. Who have they said is coming? Jesus of Nazareth. The one from Nazareth, geographically described. Who does he cry out to? Jesus, the son of David. Now you see, the term the son of David is shorthand for Messiah. It's what the rabbis would use as they were talking about the Messiah. They would talk about the son of David, the second David who is to come. You didn't just call people randomly son of David. It meant something. It was an honorific. It was a title that would point you to the Messiah. You see here, before this man even sees, he sees. He sees who Jesus is. So many people around him have sight, but they can't see. It's like the Pharisees who look and all they see is a troublemaker in Jesus. It's like others who look at Jesus and all they see is a pawn in a political power struggle. It's like others who look at Jesus and they see a prophet and a healer, but they don't see who Jesus really is. And the irony is that this blind man does. And he knows he's changed forever. He tells us what he truly saw. A Savior He tells us that he sees by what he asks for. He asks for mercy. Do you see that? He doesn't ask for sight. He doesn't ask for healing. He asks for mercy. Unmerited, free grace from Jesus. This is what the man sees. He actually asks for what each and every one of us need. Because you see, even if we can see, we need mercy, don't we? We need mercy for our relationships that pain and scar our hearts. We need mercy for the loss that hangs us down. We need mercy for the regret that we carry. Beloved, I have to tell you, there is not and no one will invent a time machine that will take you back 20 years so you can fix all of the things that you have messed up and done wrong. It's not going to happen. But we have something far greater than a time machine. We have mercy and grace that comes from a Savior who heals not just eyes, but broken hearts, And broken wills. This is who Jesus is. And this man sees him. We see it even in his insistence in what he's asking for. Others try to tell him that sit down. You're unimportant. Why would Jesus want to talk to a beggar? But he will not give up. And Mark gives us a little tiny detail. Jesus stops And he says, call the blind man to me. 
And those around him. You know, when Jesus begins to shower his mercy, you can't keep it in one place. It's like, have you ever had uh, the misfortune, in this instance, of pouring liquid into a glass and you're distracted? What happens when you forget to stop pouring? Does the glass hold it there and freeze it? No, it, it begins to flow. And it affects everything around the glass. And it goes more and more and more. And that's what's happening with Jesus. You see, Mark tells us that even those around them say to him, Take heart! Get up! He's called you! Go to him! It's not just the man who's excited now. The people who are just telling him to sit down are now excited. Because Jesus is present in his mercy and grace. He once was blind. But now he sees. And that leads to a trust that goes on forever. You see, what happens here is we see the actual faith of this man. This is a wonderful story that shows us the biblical nature of salvation. That God is the initiator. That this beggar who needs everything doesn't even know Jesus is there. Doesn't seek Jesus out. But once Jesus comes to him, how does he react? Well, he has his own personal faith. Notice, the friends don't drag him kicking and screaming to Jesus. Others don't ask on his behalf that he be healed. No, he wants to be healed. He wants to see Jesus. He must exercise his own personal faith. And just like him, for us, we exercise our faith in Christ in the same way. It begins with knowledge. Faith begins in the mind. Think about it. He knew who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus had the power to save. And he knew that he needed saving. Now, this is a far greater barrier than we think it is today. More and more people in the world don't know who Jesus is. Don't know he has the power to save. And don't think they need saving. And sadly, that's not true only outside the church. That's becoming more and more and more true inside the church. Faith begins with the mind. But it cannot stop at our head. Intellectual assent only goes so far. It must come to the heart. You've heard that, haven't you? It's an old saying. That you can't only be saved up here. It's got to go down a foot or so to your heart. Well, I think it was actually put a little bit better by John Calvin. But it's the same point. Hear what Calvin says. The next thing necessary is that what the mind has imbibed be transferred to the heart. The word is not received in faith if it merely flutters in the brain. But when it has taken deep root in the heart and become an invincible bulwark to withstand and repel all the assaults of temptation. Salvation begins with the mind, but it must come to the heart. We must be convinced of that truth that we know. Once we are convinced, that is when change begins to get a hold of us. 
It begins in the mind, it comes to the heart, but it does not stop there either. It moves to the will, because true faith is a trust. It is a resting upon the promises of God that are true in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Faith does not just know, faith does not just feel, faith rests and trusts in spite of all circumstances. After all, what's the best definition of faith? I think it's found in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. You see, that is true and living faith. Things that we know, that we know are true for us, and that because of that, we rest upon. We trust every promise of God in Christ. And Mark, again, gives us a little detail that shows us this kind of faith at work in the blind man. He says in verse 50 of chapter 10, that when the man got up, he threw off his cloak and went to Jesus. Small detail, isn't it? Except for, could you imagine if you were blind, and you only had one cloak, and you took it off in the middle of a crowd? You would never see it again. Right? He's putting aside anything that stands between him and Jesus. And he knows Jesus is going to give him his sight. He knows he's going to be all right. Why? Because he trusts the promises of Jesus. Faith is knowledge that reaches to our heart that causes us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this kind of faith becomes active in our lives. Do you see what happens to the man? He continues to persist in the faith. Now, praise be to God that it does not depend upon the strength of our faith to see Jesus. For after all, even the faith we have is a gift from God, isn't it? For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own work but it is a gift of God. And so what we have here is a gift from the Holy Spirit that never gives up, that is constantly persisting, constantly pointing us, pushing us, prompting us toward Jesus. And this kind of faith is active in our lives, and we see it in the joy that this man has. He's blind one moment, and then he sees the next, and he is changed forever. He is more now than a beggar with eyesight. He is more now than a man who can make out shapes. No, look at what Luke says in verse 43. He says, immediately he recovered his sight and he followed Jesus, glorifying God. He followed the Lord Jesus Christ. He glorified God. And it became infectious. Look at all of those around him. Luke says everyone around him glorified and praised God. This is what faith does. It does not stay static. It builds up in us. It drives us on. And it becomes infectious to others. Do you know this kind of faith in your life? Do you have a faith that is sure bedrock knowledge? Do you have a faith that grips your heart with love for the Savior? 
Do you have a faith that causes you to trust in Jesus each and every day? If you do, you can ask this man about his faith. You will meet him someday. You'll know who he is. He'll be the one praising Jesus that answers to the name Bartimaeus. You see, Mark tells us that also. Tells us about this man who was blind and now he sees. Changed in a moment by the power of Jesus Christ. You too can experience that kind of change by trusting in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would remind us that we are like blind beggars. That we are all blind until you, by your grace, give us the gift of sight. Lord, bless us and encourage us by your word. Point us to the Lord Jesus that we might open our eyes and behold his glory. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.